podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Here, we love talking about everything Batman. The BatmanUniverse.net has news, original content, and reviews about Batman comics, movies, TV shows, video games, and more. Check out the BatmanUniverse.net and join our Discord server to start chatting with fellow fans. We can't wait to talk to you guys. Also, visit our Patreon page and join our other awesome supporters. But enough of this nonsense. On with the show. Hey, Bat fans, you're listening to the Batman Universe podcast, and I'm your host, Scott. Today, we have a special guest joining me. I'd like to welcome Robert E. Elliott, author of Mi Negro Amigo, an unauthorized new analysis of Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, and today's topic of conversation, Nolanverse, exploring the greatest illusion in movie history, both of which you can find on Amazon. Thanks for joining me, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, Before we dive into your book, I'd like to first start off by uh, breaching the topic of Batman. In your bio for Nolanverse, you mentioned falling in love with the character after the 1989 film. Can you elaborate a little more on that and maybe your history with the character? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're talking to a guy who, since I'm a little kid, was, uh, you know, that's been like one of my very favorite movies for sure. I mean, people forget what an incredible piece of art that that 89 movie was and um you know people forget that i feel like i could talk the entire segment about that movie but um you know people forget that it was edited by the same guy who edited uh kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey and um there's just so many incredible moments about that and yeah it's it's i could talk on about that yeah i didn't actually realize i didn't know that that was edited by someone who worked on 2001 a space odyssey which is actually a pretty phenomenal fun fact and you know i love that movie and i'm like dissect it and rip it apart and but that is something i haven't huh probably should look more into that <laughs> you know i could give you one other thing about batman 89 real quick okay um i once read this scholarly scholarly article about it it was published probably 20 years ago, but um, you could look it up. It's in this journal called Critical Inquiry, and it's it's very interesting. It's called Batman and the Manager Theory of Hollywood Film, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's basically about how, you know, the, the movie was produced by Warner Brothers or Time Warner during that whole merger period, and it kind of asserts that there, there's like this allegory going on between the Joker character, Vicky Vale, uh, I guess Bruce Wayne, and it's a very elaborate argument, and it's been a minute since I read through it, and I'm not sure if I agree 100 percent with it, but it probably probably is onto something, and I, it's I definitely recommend it to you from one bat fan to another. Yeah, I'll have to read that. That sounds interesting. Well, and the fact that it's called you said the manager theory, right? Yeah, manager okay. theory of Hollywood film. Okay. Huh. Yeah, I'm critical have inquiry. To... I'll have to dig that up and read that because that's that's interesting to me. And that's, you know, that's a when we have Michael 
uh, Uselin on the podcast, and you know we talked about that film in particular a lot over you know the years. But you know, I always like trying to see it from a new angle and 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 learn more about the goings on or or just different you know theories. But today's topic, we're talking about the Dark Knight trilogy, your book Nolan Verse, exploring the greatest illusion in movie history, and. I'm going to pass the reins over to you and let you describe it. But this is quite uh, quite an interesting book. I think our readers will like, but I'll let you yeah. <laughs> explain it is, why. It is quite a, quite a mind-bending journey, is it not? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you think I'm onto something when I say the greatest illusion in movie history? Is that sound? I mean, it is one of the most monumental trilogies in cinema. So, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to, Press you too hard for your own personal opinion. I, you know, I think for the most part, the feedback that I've gotten so far has been uh, pretty. I've been pretty pleased with how positive it's been. Um, I, they basically feel that I'm onto something more or less. So yeah, I'll just dive right in with some talking points. And if you want to jump in, feel free. So I think it's important to emphasize, like to your listeners, that you know, I this is an unauthorized analysis. You know, you've had the pleasure to interview all sorts of people, uh, whether it's in the world of comic books or in the world of movies that are working in the Batman world within, you know, an official context. These are my independent thoughts as an author. So and yet Christopher Nolan. Is a filmmaker who encourages his viewers to discuss, to dissect, to think very carefully. Um, You know, there was a what was it, Oppenheimer, during his, during Oppenheimer, he, the, uh, there was a, a junket interview that I saw where he was basically saying that, 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 you know, the film's not finished until the audience finishes it. And it's, it goes to its audiences and is discussed and dissected. That's the final stage. So I remember reading that actually, that's, and huh. it's an interesting point. You bring that up because I do think, you know, what, if you're getting to what I think you're getting to, I do think that feeds into your book and, and just kind of the depths you've, you've mined here. Yeah. If ever there was a Nolan film that requires close analysis and dissecting, it's, it's the dark that rises. I think, I think this is kind of his ultimate, you know, people talk about Nolan's puzzle films. Uh, Memento is a, a great example, I think, but, in my opinion, I think rises, whether everyone realizes it or not. Um, once you get to the ending, there's a colossal question mark that needs to be addressed. So the question mark revolves around two key moments, right? There's the climactic. I'm assuming that virtually everyone has seen the movie. There's the climactic uh, nuclear explosion, right? And Batman, we see him flying the bat and what happens to him. And then there's Florence at the very end. Bruce Wayne, Selina Kyle, Alfred. So we all know the conventional, the prevailing conventional explanation of the ending. Bruce slash Batman somehow evades the blast. I don't, I'm not, don't ask me how he does that, but and then he ends up looking like a million bucks and going on to Florence. But if you remember, 
all the way back to 2012, not absolutely everyone wholeheartedly embraced uh, this explanation. Um, I'm thinking, I dedicate my book to David Letterman, okay? Because what he represents to me in this whole debate is someone who was not afraid to raise this issue with his guests who appeared on The Late Show back in 2012. If you go back, you probably find some of them on YouTube. Maybe not all of them, but there's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Hathaway, and Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I dedicate it to David Letterman just because um, even, even beyond this whole issue, how much I admire um, his show and during that time. And I, I, so, I do remember you having some quotes, too, from some of those interviews in the book itself for people who are curious if they can't find the clips. Yeah, I think uh, the, uh, you know, he, the, the actors have given various responses. Uh, Christian Bale is, is one who has addressed this. Um, he was interviewed in 2012. Uh, the, he had a discussion with uh, Entertainment Tonight on Sirius XM. And he was, com- comment- he was asked to comment on that scene in Florence. And basically he said that, in my personal opinion, it was not a dream that, that was for real. Um, so a lot of people jumped on that. And it became a very newsworthy quote. And they thought that um, they basically used that as evidence for the idea that Batman survives the blast. However, as I say in the book, facts are stubborn things. We take we can take Bale's comments about Florence seriously, you know, and we can take Florence uh, serious as a real event that occurred in the film. But, of course, we also have to take the nuclear explosion seriously, right? The time bomb's six-mile blast radius. Right. There's the handful of seconds remaining on the the countdown display. There's a a crowd of attentive spectators out there, remember? You know, there's the vast open sea, and there's Batman's heavy armor and his stab wound. All these little details add up. And so, you know, my book just starts from that place of common sense. Like, what if we were to take seriously... The uh, common sense suspicion that any attentive person would harbor when viewing that scene, you know, Christopher Nolan has given us a story in which Batman dies. And I'm sure that you, uh, as a Batman fan, can appreciate that as well as anyone. Um, You probably have more knowledge than me about, you know, comic books and stuff like that. And I'm not sure how common occurrence that is where batman actually dies but it happens you know somewhat regularly (laughs) oh yeah but that said you know outside the comics obviously film is kind of the medium that introduced me to batman but you know it's kind of the the medium most people are familiar with is is what i was getting to with that and you know to do that on a film level is kind of a ballsy you know grand scale maneuver that's something that really kind of unfathomable outside the pages. Yeah, and so, you know, if we're if that's the case, if Batman dies, then basically we this monumental trilogy in popular cinema is seriously different from what many have long supposed. So so to quote some words from Michael Caine's Alfred, we've got to find another way, right? Rather than settling for a shrugging perspective that tries to sweep a nuclear explosion under the rug, 
another explanation has to be sought out there. So as I was saying, it's rises as a puzzle film, but perhaps that's to be expected from Nolan. Christopher Nolan is someone who is notorious for dishing out, you know, heavy doses of trickery in his fiction. I read this book published in 2012 by a scholar named um, Todd McGowan called The Fiction of Christopher Nolan. And it doesn't um, touch on rises in that book, but it gets across the idea. It drives it home that if there's one filmmaker known for deception, uh, Nolan ought to come, come to mind. And it's worth emphasizing this because, you know, I want to differentiate my book from like just random conspiracy theories that are out there at large, um, you know, to to acknowledge that Nolan is notorious for trickery should not be that controversial in my mind. And to speculate that a guy perishes in a nuclear explosion is not that outlandish. So I start from that place of common sense, you know, wherever we might end up, we can at least admit that I start from, from common sense, you know? So we see that as viewers, it's our job to chime in in a thoughtful way. You know, essential tool in our, in our toolbox that we can approach this from is, is auteur theory, focusing on the director as a visionary auteur with a whole lot of creative control over the entire filmmaking process, uh, provides a unifying force behind his various films that can help to uh, illuminate meanings. We can perceive certain things that we couldn't otherwise. And, you know, if, if ever there was a filmmaker whose body of work merits this auteur theory approach, it's Christopher Nolan, I think. Um, you know, I also have a book about Tarantino, but that's a whole nother discussion. He's another example. But yeah, for Christopher Nolan, his entire filmography provides this treasure trove of um, just interesting points of resonance, similarity, common themes, motifs. and um, also, I would mention uh, his brother, of course, Jonathan I, Nolan. I was going to ask, just because, you know, reading your book, you, you mine a lot of Christopher Nolan's, you know, other films and everything for reference points and, you know, discussion points to weave readers through to your ultimate, you know, the road you're taking everybody down. And yes. along that ride, Jonathan Nolan gets mentioned a lot. It seems the way it's written you know, as as someone who doesn't, who know, who probably focuses more on Christopher Nolan than Jonathan Nolan, and probably wrong for doing so, it seems that they're working much closer or in tandem than I would have initially perceived, and maybe even closer to like a, maybe this might be too close, but in my head, I frame it similar or closer to like a Joel and Ethan Cohen kind of situation. Yeah, I I would recommend taking a close look at um, just all the films that have been co-written by the two brothers. Uh, the Prestige, Interstellar, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy, and, you know, The Dark Knight and Rises. And, um, of course, you have TV, or ser TV series like Westworld and Person of Interest. Westworld is a very um, resonant, very helpful place to start as well. So, and it also provides this vocabulary for me in the book of phrases that I can use in, in talking about all this and con conveying it in a in a way that people can understand. 
you know, words, phrases like deeper level, another loop around the bend. These are phrases straight out of Westworld. Take a leap of faith. That's, you know, from inception. These are all phrases that I use. And also Oppenheimer, to see beyond the world we live in and to imagine a future and power staying in the shadows. Um, so one concrete example that I draw, there's the scene back in the dark night with Heath Ledger's Joker, right? And he is falling off a building and Batman, you know, shoots his grappling gun and he's the Joker's hanging there. I draw a comparison with that and a very important scene in Rises where Bruce Wayne is hanging by a prison rope. You know, I explain in the book how that's important, and I have multiple chapters on that, a couple chapters. But it, it's not a comparison that is often drawn, I don't think, with the Joker and that scene, but but maybe it should be. And so basically I argue that Bruce has this very enigmatic, paradoxical, mind-bending insight, very pivotal, important insight in that moment that's sort of an unspoken insight that holds the key to explaining everything. Right, so on top of that whole discussion of the prison ordeal, there's the, um, we, we take a look at the, the prison chant, right? You know, the famous right. iconic chant, Deshid Basra. This is one of my favorite chapters, just because, you know, it, I think it's, it's not too highfalutin. I think it's, it's something that, enriches the whole discussion on the film right out, right out of the get-go, right out of the gate. And so I, I explore the word Basra in the context of the Arabic language. And, you know, there's the chant is supposedly translated as rise, but, well, how do we interpret rise? And so there's, there's more going on there. I won't give too much away about that, but basically um, I determined that it, the whole chant is, it's not just a bunch of like male cheerleaders, like chanting. It's all, it's a incantation of unseen spirits in, in this, in the midst of this abject desperation. And so um, specifically the spirits are called jinn or genies or however you want to think of them. Um, and this, this actually turns out to be a tremendously significant clue, um, because it connects to something later. I think you know what I'm talking about. But, yeah. Yeah. And actually on that point too, that was a chapter that really struck a chord with me because, you know, the, the note I have here is, you know, a pit imbued with spiritual power when I was doing my, my reading notes, but I tied it, I connected it to another thing you were saying, you know, I think it was a, maybe a chapter before or right around there where you were exploring Batman as kind of a, a remnant or spectral entity. And, you know, in relation with the pit and, you know, how the pit works with this spiritual power angle, it made me wonder and posit that the question, do you feel this pit could have other minds, perhaps as some sort of netherworld or nether realm? And would that potentially make Bane something of an otherworldly entity? Well, see, it's it's very interesting. And, um, you know, I think 
I've I've said everything that I have to say in my book, and what I love is when people can read that and take it and add, add even more thoughts and ideas and expand on it and enrich it and the whole discussion. So, um, I think um, you know it's important to examine that whole ordeal in the pit closely, and also once Bruce emerges from out of that pit, that's also another key moment. And people have seized on that um, as another sort of quirk in the story, right? Um, you know, how does Bruce Wayne return to Gotham? And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of explanations. Well, there's supposed to, what is it? 23 days left. Uh, that's yeah, a like time. That. Yeah. What what I what I insist on emphasizing is that we maintain an appreciation for absolutely everything that Bruce Wayne manages to accomplish uh, prior to appearing back on the scene. Um, you know, he's carrying just this meager makeshift shoulder pack. He's got the shabby prison clothes on his back. He's completely broke in the wake of that fraudulent attack. And he has to hike through a desert. And then he has to make his way from a foreign continent. And then he has to sort of track down Selena Kyle and prepare this USB thumb drive. Oh, and by the way, he has to create that giant fiery bat signal on the, uh, the bridge on the, over the Gotham River. So what I say is, yes, three weeks or whatever, that's a long time. But it's not that long. So we need to face it. There has to be something out there that Bruce has at the ready, some unseen resource uh, that doesn't get snatched away from him when he goes completely broke and that enables him to comp accomplish absolutely everything that he manages to, to accomplish at that time. So we need to think close, closely about that part of the film, the part where he eludes our sight. Um, so... You know, I don't want to give too much away, but I think um, we try to put our finger on the nature of that unseen resource. You definitely um, make a case. Well, I like I like the road you take to get there because there was I could feel like my reaction reading the book is I'm starting with it's I feel it's, like you you set the foundation, you know, talking about these different themes and ideas that are in there. But then you. I feel like you branch out to Nolan's greater body of work and bring that in. And you just, well, I, you said it earlier, actually better than I could say it, the layers, perfect word right there is it's a layered argument that, you know, keeps building and tries to draw readers to a point that most people probably wouldn't have, you know, thought about that way or taken it to that level, you know, just, and I think, but I think a lot of that, you know, making that point, I think you kind of speak to that a little bit earlier um, in the first chapter, Paradox. You There's a note there on how many filmmakers or film scholars dismiss, you know, the whole trilogy when talking about Christopher Nolan's filmography. Yeah, you some know, big and, names in there, like some major names in the world of um Film criticism, film scholarship. Right. And I know you you posit that the ending could be a reason that they kind of look at it, they see it implausible, and they don't really think about it. But I was also wondering if you thought maybe there are other factors at play. Like maybe is it 
the trilogy kind of broad stroked or earmarked as like a superhero movie, even though everyone like considers the dark Knight one of the greatest, if not the greatest superhero film of all time, but because it falls in that genre is that, you know, potentially another factor where maybe people aren't giving it the same treatment that they would Oppenheimer, interstellar, you know, insomnia. Yeah. yeah that's, that's interesting. I think, um, what one word that, that I would focus on in this whole conversation is the word realistic. That's a word that people like to throw around in describing this trilogy. They like to focus on the um, sort of gritty, realistic tone of, no, you know, Christopher Nolan's, the whole look of the film in comparison to, you know, there's Joel Schumacher with the uh, neon colors and over-the-top set designs. And so a lot of people like to describe the the Nolan verse as a sort of real, more realistic uh, more earnest telling of Batman, and certainly it is more earnest and and everything else. Um, I, but realistic, we have to be careful. I think um, there's this one quote that I say where Christopher Nolan recommends the word relatable instead. So, and when we're talking about superheroes, where we're talking about Batman, you know, I get it, but um, we have to be careful about the language that we choose. So, I would also add that. Um, you know, we, we have to look at the broader Nolan filmography in terms of science fiction. Like there's a whole bunch of science fiction uh, entries there. There's Interstellar. And then there's also films like The Prestige, um, Inception, Tenet, with all sorts of, you know, fantastical elements of technology, etc. So um, I guess what I argue in the book is that... Um, you know, it makes sense to include the Nolanverse, the Dark Knight trilogy, in that whole filmography of science fiction. Now, there are, yeah. I was going to say, in that, on a note on that, one of the things I loved that when you were talking about, like, the Nolan sci-fi elements is you use this, I wrote it down because I thought it was so cool, This that term, hard tools. And that... Yeah, that comes from a... Basically, I trace that back to a quote from, you know, Erasmus, going back to a Latin quote from Erasmus. Um, that That's one translation of that Latin quote. And so it's, I guess the modern version of that would be for desperate times, desperate times called for desperate measures. Um, and I think that that's, that's exactly the sort of mantra that we need to have in mind here. It applies to not only the nuclear crisis in Gotham, but also our predicament as viewers. We're presented with this seemingly paradoxical, seemingly contradictory dichotomy of Florence and the explosion. And we have to really um, seek out something that'll possibly make sense of that. And so, basically, you know, or to quote, uh, you know, Talia al Ghul, do what's necessary. Sure. I did have one question that's kind of you know, it precedes all of this, but um, I was curious, actually, you know, you're coming into this book, you're starting this book, you know, before it's written, what was the catalyst that led you down this road? Yeah, it's been a long journey, but I really wanted to get it right. So, you know, it all, it all started when back in 2012, 
I didn't see the movie right away, interestingly enough. I don't know. I guess I was busy at the time, but I saw it a few months after it was released initially. And from there, I just wasn't satisfied with, you know, I heard other people around me talking about it and stuff, and it intrigued me. And then when I saw it for myself, um, I just kind of wasn't satisfied with, you know, the typical responses. So, you know, I thought about it for a while. And basically, auteur theory is the, the key, you know, as I, as I said. And when you look at Jonathan Nolan and his screenwriting career, he was, um, he was, he was hired aboard the Interstellar Project back in 2007. And so I think, as I say in the book, The Dark Knight Rises was not created in a vacuum. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, everything that Jonathan Nolan did with Kip Thorne. Nolan fans will definitely know who he is at Caltech. And uh, Kip Thorne's close friend and colleague um, by the name of Igor Novikov, right, who he mentions him in his book, uh, The Science of Interstellar. And basically, once I perceived um, a connection between the jinn spirits inside the prison, right, and, you know, the literature of Igor Novikov, I'm like, that's, that's a pretty powerful connection right there. Pretty intriguing connection to me. So that's what kind of what kept me going with a certain level of confidence about this whole thing. Interesting. No, and that's, that makes sense. I just, yeah, it's just, it's just the road you take is just fascinating to me. How, how, you know, what, everything that collided to, you know, reach the road. So I'm trying to talk around the issue of the book without saying, you know, anything and spoiling it. Just, you know, <clears throat> so I probably sound like to our viewers, like I'm speaking in circles, but there's a reason for it. But the road, once you read the book, the road that this book takes, it's interesting to see the motivations and everything on the, you know, the back end that lead into this because it is, you know, something very unique. Yeah, it's, and, and, you know, once we come out the other side, we emerge with this vastly different perspective and it, it to me it almost feels like um you know it turns into a like a novel like a detective novel by the time we kind of figure everything out and are we able to do everything anew and so we have this whole new perspective on just all these different details in the movie the pearl necklace worn by selena bruce's facial scar which by the way we can compare to a certain moment in Tenet involving a scar. There's the USB flash drive that Bruce gives to Selena. And I argue that it contains something else entirely other than the, you know, the supposed clean slate uh, computer program. And of course, there's Gordon's iconic bat signal restored to pristine condition by the end of the film. Think about how long it would take you to restore that to pristine con condition. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, the giant fiery bat symbol on the bridge over the Gotham River as well. The list goes on. There's, um, you know, John Blake and the bat cave that he inherits. Um, there's a scene where Selena gets 
the bat pod and then she opens the pathway inside the Gotham Midtown Tunnel. And then she reemerges in City Hall, right? Bane's Lair inside City Hall. You know, all these seemingly mundane details, are our perspective on them has changed by the time we reach the end of this book. And by the way, isn't it isn't it interesting that at the beginning of that climactic battle, there's three tumblers in the center of their gigantic battle. And then by the end, only two are in sight. So anyway, of course, there's the all-important moment of Florence. I have a whole lot to say on Florence, don't I? Boy, where to begin about that? I don't even know. Let me say this. Um, let me put it this way. There, conventionally, there's there's two points that are that pose a puzzle, right? There's Florence and the explosion. Um, by the time we emerge from this, the end of this, you know, we, we get through the book. I, I would suggest I didn't say this explicitly in the book, but it seems to me that there's like a new puzzle involving two different moments that we need to contemplate. And I won't go too in-depth for those who haven't read the book, but I'll just briefly, um, I, I think one moment is the, the final moment when Blake rises up into the cave and what that represents. Um, I, I touch on this in the book. You know, I, I like your connection to William Blake with the name Blake, you know, for John Blake. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I delve a lot into the philosophical side of things uh, in this book, um, and and Blake is, is included in among that. I think, I think that was an intentional allusion, don't you? I think so. So, um, oh yeah, I was going to say the way you know, the way you make connections to how well read and studied, you know, the Nolans are, that definitely makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I would pose, you know, uh, this, there's, there's a puzzle between uh, John Blake rising up into the cave and what that represents is, you know, it's difficult to talk about this without giving everything away, but, um, and the other would be just Blake's, or I'm sorry, Bane's, you know, what, what Bane causes us to consider that the idea, the scenario in which Gotham is ashes. So obviously no one wants, how do I explain this, Scott? I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. It's uh, the way I guess I would frame it for people who are listening and aren't sure where we're going is that what you think you see, you know, the argument in the book is, is, is much greater than, and it kind of weaves into everything we've been talking about with the sci-fi elements and, you know, all of the learned, you know, opinions and feelings of the Nolans and how it kind of, Everything Christopher Nolan has done around the Dark Knight trilogy, both before and after, and his per chance to play with, you know, linear filmmaking and kind of strip it apart and move it around and 
make you question yeah. things. I feel like question yeah. the contours of the fictional world that is the Nolanverse. How exactly complex is this fictional world? How many layers are there? How how much of a brain twisting puzzle is this whole concept? And I think in in contemplating that there are two those two moments that we have to contend with seriously. And I think people people will understand once they've read the book, but Blake rising up into the cave at the very end is one serious moment to contend with in this whole discussion. And then there's Bane's goal in which Gotham is ashes. And so what I will say is that in contemplating the contours of the fictional world of the Nolanverse, we shouldn't, you know, are we guided by simply wishful thinking or are we guided by what we would prefer to imagine a more optimistic or rosy scenario playing out or, you know, how confident are we in committing to this whole fictional world of the Nolanverse and what, how expansive it is. That I'll of, just leave it at that. And people will understand when they've read the book, I think, but it's very, it's a big question mark. And I, you know, the Nolan brothers are, are brilliant for, for having come up with this whole puzzle film. And that's, that actually flows right into a question I had, you know, something I was thinking about, it triggered, this is way early on in, in, in the book, but, there's a quote you pulled from uh, Time Magazine editor Richard Corliss describing Christopher Nolan as a consummate conjurer. And as yes. someone who appreciates studies and loves films, do you see this deceitful style of Nolan's as sort of the next leap in filmmaking? You know, audiences know how movies work now compared to over 100 years ago. The editing, the sound, the way everything flows, you know, are kind of afforded this style where we're maybe we're ready for it. You know, is that something you would agree with or you feel that only now this type of filmmaking could exist or. It's an interesting question. Um, and by the way, I'm interested to see where, obviously I'm interested to see where Nolan's filmmaking career goes in the future. Um, you know, I think I, th I will say this, a lot of his, uh, work from Memento, the early days of Memento on through, I guess, you know, rises, perhaps even further into Interstellar, have been characterized immensely by deceit. Um, once you get into Oppenheimer, maybe the conversation morphs a little bit, and it's possible that deceit is not such a centrally defining characteristic of Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker when we get to, you know, Dunkirk or arguably Tenet, but, you know, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is not something you would call a puzzle film, you know? So, yeah, that, that's what I would say about that. But, you know, speaking of his filmography, is there, in having watched all of them is there a known film more so than others that you feel reveals more of the workings of christopher or jonathan it kind of goes both ways or are all these movies maybe more along a timeline where we learn a little bit more about each of these artists as they perfect and hone their craft 
I'd have to think about that for a minute. Um, yeah, I hit you with a <laughs> with a, a, a heavy one there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, th- that got me thinking about you know going back to the earliest days of Jonathan Nolan's career. First of all, there's this. Um, film he made as a university student in 1997 called Doodlebug. And I don't even mention that at all in the book, but I think even that is arguably resonant with Rises. And once you read my book, uh, the, the folks out there read my book, they'll understand. But I, I find that remarkable that even going back to university days, he has this thread of continuity of certain motifs and themes and parallels and points of resonance um, that continue, you know, year after year. Now, maybe not absolutely everything, you know, the insomnia is, for example, is a pretty straightforward, uh, no sci-fi example, but yeah, it's, there's a whole lot of consistency and patterns going on with Nolan. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I have one Final question for the for the night before we mm-hmm. um, hang up here, and this is outside of the Nolan verse. Just you know, after you know, hateful eight in the Nolan verse, what are you writing next? What can readers look forward to? People who read either one or both, and you know, they're juiced in. You know, what can they wait? For? What can they hang on for? I do have more in the works. Yeah. I have one more banger that has to do with cinema. And I think fans will be very interested. And it's near it's, it's nearly ready to be released uh, at an opportune time. So yeah, if you want to hit follow on Amazon to be notified when that is released, that's that's great. And yeah, and I do have probably three more books that have nothing to do with movies after that that are also equally important and then some. So nonfiction I'm those, or not nonfiction. Yeah, I'm keeping those close to the vest. But yeah, those will take me a lot of work and a long time. But, you know, it all starts with Nolan first that uh, helped me to sort of see myself as a as an author. And um, so, yeah, it's been awesome. Well, and that that, you know, makes sense, because I, I will say this is exhaustively researched, you know, the amount of hours and digging you had to put in to you know first frame the book and then find all the information to support it and you know we're talking news articles other reviews different posts on the web you know interviews there's so much that went into this you know and that's it's it's kind of it's kind of a phenomenal work at that so i wanted to say i really wanted to you know this is such an important issue for you know fans around the world of this great uh you know just one of the most important trilogies that there ever will be so i really wanted to do justice to it and do it the right way and you know however long it took me and um so i you know i'm basically what you what you see in that book represents more or less exactly how i feel about the matter and um so yeah i you know i I don't regret one bit of it so awesome. Well, thank you for chatting with me today, Rob. For those who no want problem. to pick up Nolanverse, exploring the greatest illusion in movie history, please check it out on Amazon. I have links posted below. 
for reviews and more, including an upcoming review of this book, you can visit thebatmanuniverse.net. If you want to chat with us, you can hop on our Discord, or you can also write to us at tbu at thebatmanuniverse.net, and we'll respond to your comments. If you like these episodes, please subscribe, rate, and share. Thanks for listening. <laughs>